This episode on philosophers chatting with clinicians, we are exploring substance addiction. I think it's important to state at the beginning of this episode is that this is an exploratory conversation about how we look at addiction and is no way intended to replace medical treatment. If you are struggling with addiction or find any of the content of this chat triggering, please seek the advice of your medical team or your doctor. Hello and welcome to another edition of Philosophers Chatting with Clinicians. The aim of this podcast is to provide a space for a humble and curious exploration of the topic of ill health, pain and what it is to be human, bridging the gap between the world of philosophy and clinical practice. I'm Laura Rathbone, a UK qualified and registered physiotherapist specialised in working with pain, but have happily found myself living and working in the Netherlands, speaking and teaching on pain as well as supporting people as a pain coach. For this episode, uh, we have the awesome Mark Miller and Katinka Damon. Mark is a Canadian philosopher that is currently collaborating with Andy Clark over at the Uni of Sussex in the UK, although for this episode he is joining us from Canada. <laughs> and Katinka is a specialist psychologist from the Netherlands working at a service in Brabant for people struggling with addiction. So, thank you very much and I hope you enjoy it. Um, and I will see you in the break. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Are you still in your pajamas? I am not still in my pajamas. <laughs> this is my new winter sweater with polar Oh, lovely. I would yeah. definitely still be in my pajamas if it was yeah. that early. Oh, hi, Katinka. Hi, Laura. Oh, lovely. Hi, Katinka. All the technology's working. We can hear each other. We can see each other. I see you've got a cup of tea there, Mark. Have you got a drink, Katinka? Um, I will get it. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm also going to get it. So, Mark, nice to meet you. Yes, nice meeting you as well. So, uh, where are you located, Katinka? Are you also in the Netherlands? Yes, I'm also in the Netherlands, in the in the south, more in the south than Laura is in in uh, Brabant, we call it. So, uh, and where are you? Right now, I'm in Canada. Uh, okay. This is outside. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> That's a different view. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I'm I'm based right now at the University of Sussex. In, okay. um, south of England. Ah, okay. You're doing uh, research over there. Exactly. I'm, mm -hmm. uh, I'm the postdoc research assistant on Andy Clark's um, Embodied Predictive Processing ERC grant. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, it's great. University of Sussex is excellent. The lab is great and the people are all great. Okay. No, oh, that's fine. So, uh, and, and you've been, uh, you come from Canada or uh, are you? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I'm Canadian. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I've been I've been in the UK for um, I've been in the UK for ten years now. Actually, yeah. I did my I did my master's and my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, and, you did. And now my postdoc and now postdoc okay. at the University of Sussex. 
Okay, so this is a challenge for me because you're, I'm uh, um, doing this with two native speakers. So, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and, and, and I have a tendency to talk fast, so I'll slow it down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I will uh, keep you uh, <laughs> a bit slower. So exactly, uh, easy, great, great. Uh, well, we um, will that. Uh, I know that you work with addiction and pain. Are you yeah. a psychologist? Is that right? I'm a psychologist, and um, okay. I've been uh, working with uh, within the addiction care for about uh, 20 years now. And um, I I made a kind of a detour. I I went and went uh, to work in the in a, in a hospital in um, rehabilitation care with uh, also pain patients. So I. Um, kind of a, a, a trip from, away from addiction, but um, uh, as I noticed, it's 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 yeah, it can keep the uh, a lot of processes are the same, and a lot of um, problems we encounter are the same. So uh, I thought, oh, I have to go back to uh, the addiction care and integrate, try to integrate because uh, <laughs> if it's working, I don't know yet. So, uh, Wow. Wow. It's so interesting. Laura, if you, I have like a, I already have a dozen questions. Um, <laughs> I knew you would like it. <laughs> so uh, it's supposed to be a chat. It's not supposed to be like a presentation or it's supposed to be two people or three, obviously only I'm sort of only half count. Um, getting to know each other, learning about each other's work and seeing where they can collaborate and where there's, where there's interesting stuff between them and where there might be differences of opinions and how we negotiate that. That's the whole point of this. So although I do sort of try to think, okay, well, let's try and focus on like what is a more traditional model of addiction, maybe yeah. coming into a more updated model, like uh, looking at what you've been uh, writing, Mark, because I think it's quite um, new for a lot of us clinicians to think from this perspective. <laughs> and then maybe we can go into how does that impact in the clinic so what might change for us in the clinic and maybe as part of the first section we can talk about um like what's already limiting within our traditional model why are we looking for a new way of doing things so when you're both saying um the traditional model are we are we speaking about the sort of uh brain disease model like this yeah, um, I I think we can uh, work with that. I think there, are, in in the past, there were other models about addiction, like uh, seeing it as a character problem, exactly. or right. a behavioral problem, for which people went to uh, like therapeutic communities, and they they will will go there and come out as a different person, and then uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, do some uh, other stuff then taking yeah. drugs um, but uh, we really found out in addiction care that that doesn't work although I think that uh, still uh, therapeutic communities do a lot of good work and um, uh, uh, make sense for some kind of uh, types of addiction but hmm. um, can, you, uh, can, you, can you give me an example there where would where would the sort of older that even that even that older older model of it sort of being um, a behavioral breakdown or where is that still finding sort of traction today in practice 
Yeah, I think uh, what what was a strong uh, intervention in the therapeutic communities, and, and there are now more therapeutic uh, modern therapeutic communities uh, yeah. today. But uh, I think they take over um, a little of the control. Like uh, uh, there's a lot of loss of control with our uh, addicted. Uh, addicted patients they uh, like in your paper that they uh, although they know that they shouldn't use so much drugs or shouldn't use at all they they can find to stop themselves and the therapeutic community was a real safe environment and uh, it I think that the strong uh, thing about that is that you uh, offer the opportunity to uh, for half a year or even a year uh, be out of control of that drugs and learn uh, other yeah, learning strategies and also other ways of um, uh, getting reward. So that could wow. still work, I guess. For yeah. a lot of patients, they don't get to the point where they can do that in their own um, unsafe environments. Really, really, wow. I didn't know that there were such long programs, like six months. Did I hear you right? Like a sort of half year? They were in the past, but they, they're really diminished, the, the number of programs that, that is still working like that. I, our clinic worked for three, month, three months maximum. Yes. So oh. back, in, back in the sort of turn of the century, sort of back towards the Victorian era um, in, in the UK, uh, also in North America, I'm sure, there was an idea that if you got mentally unwell or you were challenged in some way, it would be good to just go away. Mm-hmm. So literally you would go away and there wouldn't be really so much training. It would just be uh, a relaxing, calming, uh, different environment. And people got better from their sort of depressions and anxieties and, and whatever else. And mm-hmm. You know, we're thinking, we can get into this more and more, but we're thinking more and more about how, uh, well, we're thinking more about systems rather than parts, um, yeah. in, at least in the philosophy of, of these sorts of things, philosophy of cognition. Um, and so you're looking for a breakdown in a system rather than a breakdown in any one part. And you might imagine that if it's a system-wide breakdown, then addressing the whole system Mm-hmm. would be a would be a would be maybe a good way to go about addressing the issue and yeah. i think taking somebody right you know temporarily outside of their situation that's kind of a whole new system isn't it all yeah. new yes. all new peers all new environment all new activities you don't have any of your yeah. old problematic environment uh so yeah, yeah. Very interesting. but we also know that if we take people away from their environment and, and put them back again afterwards then right. that's the problem because there's, um, yeah, like, uh, uh, it seems that the, it doesn't uh, translate to the new, to the old situation, what they've uh-huh. learned. So we have to look into what we learn in that period that we put them somewhere else, I guess, and how we learn. And, and that's, that's where, where your uh, paper is really interesting, because now the, the, the most of the strategies we use today are, uh, and I think that that's what we call the the, the old theory already. Um, it is based on the reward uh, learning, right. and um, yeah, we know th- that it can work in some way and with some patients, but uh, also a lot of patients they don't get to uh, profit from that kind of a treatment. Right. So uh, we just have to look into uh, other perspective perspectives, I guess. So. Uh, yeah. 
Yep. I, Laura. Sorry, I, I'm probably going to cut in and say something. You're welcome. <laughs> totally irrelevant here, but it, it, it's, I'm just. <laughs> so firstly, I love this conversation because where I'm from in England, Blackpool, we used to have the minus convalescent homes. So they used to come to our town and then they would all go and get the sea air was prescribed as a, as a kind of antidote to like the black lung. And, and so it, just reminiscent of those kind of approaches. And um, I was thinking about how it makes sense, really, doesn't it? That if we think about the breakdown of, a, of that sort of dynamic coupling between the agent and the world, and then we take them into a different part of the world and they, they create a new coupling there and they have maybe a more successful way of living because they find new ways of creating an identity in that place. And then we bring them back to their old place. All of the original affordances and all of the original sort of cues and triggers are all there. And so they will slip back into the same predictive processing is this, um, uh, um, that they were in before because they're still back in that same identity, right? Yeah. So they will, yeah. I mean, it must be very, it's, it's really difficult, I think, to, to, to change that within their known environment. It almost seems like two different two different phases of one movement where uh, potentially going away. And I think maybe, I mean, I, I think we all have this experience. I, we probably all have experienced something of addiction in our life, but I think it's much more generalized too. Um, if we go away, for instance, you go on a gap year from university, I think we're already thinking that deep down we know that if we want to make some changes in our life, it's good to sort of go away and do and be somebody else. But I think we also have the experience of as soon as we come home, didn't we find out that really we just turned back into the same sort of person we were before? I think that all the time. I come home to my family's house. I think, wow, I've, you know, I've really matured. And then I'm back in my family's house and I'm acting like a teenager again. And I don't know, I'm looking around thinking, where did this, where did this person come from? I was so mature and balanced. And now I'm not like that at all. Um, I, so Laura, when you said like go away and then come back and be integrated, um, you're right, because it's a dynamical system, there's, there's lots of factors involved in how the world shows up. And you're right, the environmental affordances are strong, I think. It's almost a sort of two-phase movement, like to go away and to learn skills, I can really hear why that might be beneficial. But then there would be the whole work of bringing those skills back to your life. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how that shows up in the clinical world, but I imagine there must be something, I would imagine the discussion has to be if people go away for rehab that still exists today, there must be a big discussion about, well, how do you take what you've learned here in this specialized environment and how do you, how do you then bring it back out and uh, spread it through your I, life, the ordinary I, life you have? I think that then that's where the, the complexity kicks in because uh, it's not only that people need to learn different skills and uh, need to learn different maybe predictions or precision or how do you call it in your article action policies uh, but they also learned in their own environment um, um, survival strategies I, I guess uh, that are not related all uh, um, not all related to the addiction uh, I think that a lot of our patients, they have been traumatized and they have uh, personality pathology and they've learned in early life that they need some uh, strategies that can predict safety uh, that are not 
really uh, helpful maybe in the in the current situation so when you uh, have been beating by, uh, beaten by your dad or your mom and you always go to your room to avoid that then you've learned that to predict that going to your room is the thing that you keeps you safe so if that gets uh, integrated with an addiction later on like using drugs in your room uh, that, that will also keep you from hearing the yelling or something else then I think that's that's uh, that's a chain of uh, predictions and when you get back home that or immediately kicks in I guess so uh, I and I think that it's even more complex because people with those kind of pathology they always search for something that that's familiar and maybe something that fits the the prediction of the or, or the precision I, I don't know how to ex you know better how to explain that but uh, if they have learned that uh, people are not to be trusted, then maybe it's it's um, uh, it's precision for them to learn that they are not trusted. So they engage in activities that will confirm this um, this uh, way of thinking. But I don't know how you see that. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's coming up a little bit in the literature recently on. We don't have to get so much into predictive processing unless it's, unless it's interesting to the whole group, but a little bit from the predictive processing <laughs> framework, um, some recent ideas about depression highlight this, um, this vicious, sort of vicious higher order prediction routine that turns on. So at first you're doing worse than you expect at managing the world and that feels really bad. It brings about a lot of suffering and that's already, that's already bad. So you have these huge expectations for how you expect or predict your life to be. Mm -hmm. That's not being helped by our media nowadays. You know, we're being shown these grand lives. Um, we're expecting to be with these kinds of partners and so much cultural expectation to have this kind of job and to look this way and to whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, there's these huge expectations. And if you're not able to meet those expectations because you don't have the skills or the abilities, um, you don't have the resources, um, whatever, then the difference between that is a kind of error in the system. And that error is really experienced as a kind of anxiety or pain and suffering. Um, that's already bad enough. But then what you, what you mentioned there is one layer sort of worse, which is if the system keeps doing worse than expected again, 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 it will eventually come to predict that it's going to do worse than expected. Yeah. Then it's going to go around looking for proof that it's going to do worse than expected. So uh, automatically, that, yeah. Right. Now the world is really showing up as confirmation, predictive confirmation that you're going to do worse than expected, that you're going to be in danger, that the world is difficult. And so some recent ideas about depression uh, think that there's a sort of tipping point where the first one sort of tips into the second one. And I can imagine the same thing is probably true with addiction. Well, for this whole family, for this whole family of difficulties, I, I would imagine it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's, that's a diff that when you take a person out of the environment, maybe you can give, um, break through that with some patients, but then when they get back, you have immediately the problem that it's really a re reconfirmed 
what they've already learned are that's that's also in in, in a kind of way attractive to to know what you got yeah. and i guess it's really hard if they're also expecting that under therapy they do better than when they're on their own mm-hmm. because then so then when they when they leave therapy and they fail or they revert or they go back to that then they're just confirming that they can't manage on their own and so we that's why we see people coming in and out in and out in and out doing well in therapy but not sustaining maybe this is all just part of a much grander dynamical system like something yeah yeah dynamical coupling that's the word i was thinking of and it can also it's a simple prediction if i have a relapse then I go to the clinic. So it's, it's very easy to predict and, and a little uh, yeah, failure in that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the clinic can become a kind of um, uh, replacement bedroom. So it's, a, it's now a place of safety. Mm-hmm. And then, so then of course they keep coming back in. And then of course what we do as clinicians is we say treatment seeking behavior or non non responder and we push them back away again so then what becomes safe becomes unsafe and then it's like this real difficult cycle for people yeah wow this this organic dynamical unfolding complexity is must be so difficult when rubber hits the road to treat i mean it must be a very difficult thing to treat how do you um how do you in today's world where you're working how do you um confront and uh sort through some of this complexity katinka well uh in different kind of ways i guess we're we're really working uh, from the uh, rewards uh, model so we try to replace um all the things that are rewarding uh, for the for the addiction by uh, healthy alternatives uh but it's it's yeah that's a that's a something that works for uh some of the patients and we see that it works for especially for patients that are haven't been in treatment for such a long time we work around it so some patients we say okay you 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 are addicted and you probably are going to remain addicted uh, in the in the in the present or the near present so we're going to work around it we we give them um, healthy uh, yeah, healthy environment maybe some work or we, we give them even we give them the addictive uh, uh, means like like a heroin substitution or um, so that they have more space and more time to do um, other stuff and then sometimes it, it makes them flip to the other side so yeah yeah, they, yeah. but um, it's we're really wor- still working uh, it's called the uh, community reinforcement approach I don't know if you he- heard from it I looked it up I looked it up when I oh. saw that you were working in this actually yes yeah. <laughs> so it's it tries to uh, get uh, rewards from the near environment really like in the um, same environment where people live uh, try to install more uh, rewarding factors like uh, contact with uh, with family or uh, a working place or maybe sports and something that's that's really rewarding to that that person so yeah. really individualistic 
but yeah. yeah it's when i i uh, i read your paper I, in in the uh, at first i thought well is this is this really different from what we do because it's also uh, from the reward system that but then i was thinking about it and i thought oh well because um what we do with patients is very is rather asking them to do something that's not predictable so we look at uh, uh, life areas like uh, work so if you if you really uh, get into that and see uh, try to get patients to go to uh, some form of employment that's that's really complex you have to have skills you have to uh, uh, have uh, motivation you have to uh, the, the uh, have knowledge so predicting if that will work is really difficult and it's also a long-term thing i guess so uh, i was thinking wouldn't it be better if we got to do our patients to do some tasks that are less complex and more predictable like cleaning up your sock drawer or uh, uh, engaging in a, in a physical uh, exercise or uh, that's less complex and more predictable i don't know yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I mean, it's a really, it's a really nice way of thinking. You're right because you're asking them to do something which is still fraught with a lot of air, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. um, one of the hypotheses we make that diverges, um, I- at least, at least uh, in the way we discuss it, maybe not in terms of the mathematics, but at least in the way we discuss it, that deviates from the ordinary way people are talking about predictive processing is we're really highlighting the fact that the predictive organism isn't trying to reduce all error, but okay. rather is trying to is trying to find consumable errors. It's trying to find errors that it can manage and reduce because we like reducing errors. It feels good. It feels good when we reduce errors, but it has to be within that window of tolerance, mm-hmm. those errors that you're able to manage. If the errors are too big, then that's no good. And if the errors are too little, then that's, we're bored. So maybe, okay. yeah. I mean, I can definitely see where that might show up in what you were just saying to try to find the juicy, the juicy window of tolerance and then to have people engage with meaningful activities within that range where they can have successes. Um, one, thing, one thing that I, I picked up just while you were speaking was um, something that is very similar between how you treat people and how, because I'm not in the, I'm not in the clinical side at all. I'm just reading papers and thinking about these things. So it's lovely to talk with somebody who's actually working with people. One of the, one of the things that I would have, I would have suspected just from uh, the theory is that um, one way. So again, um, if you have, if you have huge expectations for what you want out of life and you're not in the condition you're not in the position to carry those out. Mm-hmm. And that produces a lot of error. And um, addictive drugs most uh, impact the system as if all of that error is suddenly reduced temporarily. So you can imagine how they turn out to be, um, they're actually, you know, from the, from the, organism, from the brain side of the story, um, that's a perfectly good way to sort of deal with a problem. The problem is there's a lot of error that you're not able to resolve. And then suddenly you can resolve it. Um, In a split second. Yeah. Uh, right, right. And, and, and reliably, you just have to go to your same yeah. friend, same yeah. friend, same routine. And then again, again, all of your, 
yeah. all of your worries, they suddenly, they suddenly collapse. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when I, when I started really thinking about that, I started thinking, wow, it's less surprising that some people are addicted and more surprising that we're not all addicted, really. If the whole system is built to keep reducing error and we have this big error, then, then I don't know why, I can really understand why the system might be gravitated towards those things. So just based on that, we suspected that one way you might facilitate, um, uh, one way you might reduce a, addictive behaviors is to exactly like you say, um, alter what you're predicting. So you're predicting this kind of life and you don't have the skills and abilities to do that. But what if we changed what you were aiming at? And what if we gave you the skills and abilities to succeed at those things? Yes. Suddenly, suddenly now you're succeeding. You're succeeding. So what you actually have to do was you have to change your value states. Oh, yeah. So half of it is you have to change your values. And the other half is you have to change your skills and abilities. And they somehow meet in the middle. So yeah. I found myself saying at a couple of conferences recently that it seems to me that we're, we have less of an opioid crisis and we have more of a meaning crisis. We're not doing very good at having humans have good goals and then the kind of skills so that they can meet those goals so that they can have a meaningful, fulfilling, happy life. And if you had those things working, yeah. then you would imagine, well, then you would have all sorts of ways to reduce error within that window of tolerance again. And you wouldn't need, you wouldn't need this uh, additional thing to synthetically give you a sense of that collapse. Yeah. I, I agree with you, but the difficulty, I guess, is in the in the part where you say you have you could change your val the values. Huh? I, I hear you, but uh, when it comes to values, like um, for instance, a, a very difficult, complex value like uh, engaging in in relationship or in in, in loving. So that's so basic for us to do. So eh, for for most of us, it's it's um, it's what makes you want to live, doesn't it? And to say, well, maybe you should uh, leave that <laughs> aside and engage in simpler or um, maybe less complex values. I don't know if people can 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 do that because so that passion urge for also a survival urge, I guess. Of course, of course. I should just let me clarify. You're exactly right. So thank you so much for bringing that up. That some of the most important predictions that are being that are being breached and causing these negative spirals are going to be hardwired, evolutionarily adaptive expectations, like to be loved and to be cared for and to be in a social environment and um, to be well and not to be harmed and to be healthy, to be fed, to be watered, to be sheltered. Those are all. And and, and you're right. I'm definitely not saying oh, people just have to learn to live on the street with no love and definitely not that. Um, the, so that's, I would like to talk more about that though because I know that's a, one of the big motivators. I just wanted to be clear, the predictions I was talking about, which is another part of the story, is more like uh, expecting to be a millionaire, um, okay, yeah. expecting yeah. to have a super fancy car, expecting I to be a, that. <laughs> right, right, a straight A student, a straight A student, and then that doesn't budge. So you, you looking know, like you Miley Cyrus, or uh, yeah. right, right, exactly, exactly. Or to be a to be a professional sports person, <laughs> where when in your neighborhood there's no sports, uh, let's say there's no because you live 
you know, in a place where there's no sports activities or skill based, then yeah. to have that to have that high expectation to be like this without any of the skills that can create that can create tensions as well. Yeah, um, I think we can learn from. Uh, maybe th there's some uh, studies on um, sexual addictions, mm. and there, uh, they, in that part, I don't know if you heard from uh, Van Zessen, he's a professor who studied this and made a protocol based on, I guess, what we're talking about, more uh, less complex and uh, less high goals, but. Uh, when you get the urge to engage in um, compulsive sexual activity, then when you get the urge, you just uh, go up and do something else that's really simple, like uh, doing the dishes. You can do right. the dishes and then you get a good feeling from that. And right. then uh, it's, it seems to work. So maybe we could learn and expand that to other addictions as well. But I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So... I think you're right on, in that perspective, but it's, uh, I, uh, uh, I agree with you that it's the more um, uh, really um, uh, the, the things that, that really hit the person like love, relationships. I think that's the part where we still fail with our patients because they're always trying to engage in, in those kind of things and they should, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, but um, that's also the part that has real uh, uh, high risk at failure because they didn't engage for a long time. They don't know how to, how to, uh, or they uh, they get anxiety and then use drugs and then uh, blow the thing and and then confirm what they've already learned. I'm not good at this. So, so that's I think that's the the main challenge where we are. Uh, what we are looking at for for uh, us to uh, see how we can get the, our patients closer to that, uh, to that values yeah. uh, without letting them fail again. Yeah. Are there are there um, are there any focus in the in the support communities on developing those sorts of skills and abilities if they're if they're um, if they're lacking or or if they could be updated? Is that is that already part of the conversation? Like to learn yeah. how to have friendships and, and increase relationships and have different sort of orientations? Yes, we do that. Um, we have uh, social skill training. Right. Uh, we, ha we also have one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one talks in, in which we uh, try to explore where the, the, the people can, uh, what, are, what are you good at in that perspective? What, what are your challenges and how could you meet them and, and change and um, how could you, uh, yeah, um, and we try to model them how you should do that in the therapeutic relationship also. Yeah, um, yeah but really, I think it's realistic that, that you, when you get to engage in, in, in those activities like dating, that you mm -hmm. get to meet some disappointments for Sure. sure all of us i guess but, but the, with our patients it's, it's chal the challenge is to uh, prepare them and and um it will always hit something that that they learned earlier about themselves and the world and not yeah. always the most uh positive things i guess so yeah it's really balancing uh, <laughs> a bit yeah i have a little i have a little bit of experience with um there's a 
there's a cafe in Edinburgh called Serenity Cafe, I think. And it is, uh, it is um, a sort of center for the addiction community to meet, uh, to work, uh, to spend time. They have free yoga and meditation classes. I've taught, I've taught a meditation course there before. They, they hosted um, sort of on their space, they hosted a, a, a yoga festival. They do all sorts of art projects. So it's sort of simultaneously a place where the wider community can come and learn about some of the challenges that its community is facing. Um, and it's also a place for people to, to work and to change and to build new sorts of relationships. And even just from my few times being there and speaking with the people there, it's just a tremendously impactful and I think a really, a really inspiring place. And it seems that it sort of touches, it touches all the things we're talking about. It's a new environment, but not completely different environment. And they're new friends, but not completely different friends. It's not like you had to you went traveling to another country or something. Mm-hmm. And they're even friends who are going through the same sorts of things who are maybe a little bit further ahead than where you are with already good coping strategies and skills. And you can really see how it's, uh, yeah. maybe what we need is, now this is highly theoretical, but it seems to me, it seems to me somehow it feels right that if it is a complex dynamical system, if addiction is a complex dynamical system, you might expect that the resolution of that system would be the, would be the beginning of a new dynamical system that's not sort of a downward spiral, but rather an upward spiraling dynamical system. Mm-hmm. You know, not just one thing. And I think that was the big part of our paper was that we wanted to say, we're not going to, it might not be the best way to solve this by, by taking one part and focusing on it. Better maybe to approach this on many faces and many fronts uh, that include both sort of the brain yeah. and the body and, and the environment. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, maybe uh, when, you're, when you're telling me this, I, I'm, I get to think uh, maybe we as a clinicians, uh, we're much too much focused also on what, uh, what's not okay, what goes wrong. Like uh, we, we uh, do uh, trauma therapy, we do therapy for depression, uh, we give Patients' medication when they feel anxiety. So we're really focusing on uh, all of the things that aren't well, and we're trying to fix them. And the patients also do that. I can't get to go. I, I won't get to the to the yoga class or to uh, before I get to feel less anxious. So maybe, and that's I already talked up front with Laura a bit about this. Um, I think the acceptance and commitment therapy also gives something to do um, at that point and, and uh, say, well, you have the anxiety, you have the depression, you also have the addiction and take it with you and go and engage in uh, those kinds of, of things in a new environment and uh, act and, and uh, then they will have a yeah, maybe some experience that will correct all those, well, maybe not all those, but <laughs> some of the uh, uh, predictions and also some of the um, um, vicious uh, circles uh, they were in. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Laura, do you do this accept and commit? Is that something <laughs> that's part of your practice? I saw, I, I saw the reaction when accept and commit got, got referenced. <laughs> I'm an excellent acceptor and I'm great at commitment. No, um, <laughs> I, I think this is the exciting bit about the model for acceptance and commitment therapy. So what uh, Katinka is, is talking about and what you're 
sort of describing, Mark, sounds like the integration of the sort of third wave cognitive and behavioral approaches where we're bringing compassion focused approaches in and exposure based work. So we're exposing the person to their um, environment and trying to work on reframing how they experience that. So we're not necessarily saying, um, let's just change who you are and how you're living. We're saying, well, if this is, this is the life you want to live and this is your environment that you live in, how do we help you thrive within that? Um, and part of that might be getting better at being really uncomfortable. So sitting outside of your prediction. So, so creating error might be something that we have to do and help support you whilst you do that. So whilst you don't fulfill your prediction, you, 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 um, you were sort of create this surprise within the system. Well, how do we keep you on track with that? And that might be through um, trying to drive stronger links to other values that sit within the same activity. So, um, and, 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 and I think that's where like integrating more sort of exposure-based approaches really sits nicely within your model of compulsive behavior, which I think almost when I was reading the paper, I was thinking, God, this could be about any, anything. This doesn't necessarily have to be about drug use. This could be around pain. This could be around depression. This could be anxiety. This could be even actually just people who are thriving. It's just that instead of the compulsive behaviors leading towards a, like a socially negative outcome or socially like um, distancing behavior or unhealthy behavior, they're driving us towards healthy, socially connected behaviors, but they're still compulsive and they're right. still driven within that predictive model. Right. Right. I love all of that. Yeah. I think there's lots of good stuff there. I love um, one thing. One thing you said that uh, I feel joined to comment on is uh, these sort of, meta skills like becoming comfortable with error um i mean that i'm sure i'm sure that's already central to this sort of work that to become to be able to be just mindful of error rather than letting error drive the system so you feel uncomfortable because you're not meeting the expectations you were expecting and learning to just come into a better relationship with that driving force um, I imagine that it makes a huge amount of difference. Yeah, and I think our role within that is how we dose titrate the exposure to error. Right. right? We want to create, and I, what really resonated was that you were saying it's like this kind of sweet spot of error management, right? It's like loading the system. It's if right. We're looking for that sweet spot. We might use different words and different exactly. frameworks, but if we if we can very easily extrapolate a predictive processing and an embodied perspective onto this it's just a different different language that's all and yeah. um, but we're looking for that sweet spot we're looking for a challenge that is achievable but is not so low that it feels um, meaningless exactly. but it's but it's not so high that it floods the person's system so we're right. wanting to find that sweet spot in exposure and we're wanting to find something that is valuable to them um, that, and, and we're looking for a value that is robust enough to, um, to tolerate this kind of discomfort, this feeling that comes up when you're not, when you're, you're outside of your skill, right? Outside of your skill set. 
So you're not only trying to find that sweet spot, but I imagine, am I right? You're also expanding the, the window of tolerance, <laughs> right? You're, yeah. you're, allow, you're allowing a wider, a wider amount of error to be available without it driving the system to um, sort of a suboptimal end. And of course, what you're always wanting to do is, sorry, um, if, I'm, if I'm dominating a bit here, I try to keep as quiet as possible. But and what you're also trying to do is like you're trying to get the error in, but then you want it to very quickly go from being error to skill. You want them to go error. Oh, I'm now precise at this. Error, I'm precise. Error, precise. Error, precise. And that is like this kind of graded exposures to being a human that starts to very slowly and gradually shift across. So I got to say just one more thing. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. So I can imagine then, I mean, that's just, so we've written now, we caught onto this idea and then we've really run with it. So we've just finished our fourth paper and we're about to start our fifth paper on the same idea. We have one idea and we're just, we, we thought, well, we applied it to curiosity, curiosity and playfulness, and then to depression and mood disorders and then to desire and then now just addiction. And we're, the next one we're gonna do is on happiness and human flourishing. And, and I just hear something there, like uh, the system that is uh, built up to pay attention to uh, opportunities within its window of tolerance for error, skill development, and resolution. The system that's tuned into the world to really leverage that process, I think would be a really healthy, good, well-balanced, flourishing human system. So what the world shows up as is opportunities to develop skills and to overcome challenges and to be, uh, you know, to always be engaged with that error and error resolution. I, I love that. It's a great thought. I, I think that these are also parallel processes, aren't they? Because I, while you were talking, I, I was thinking um, we should do that maybe with our patients, eh? get them with, between those uh, uh, lines. But uh, we have to start with ourselves as clinicians, I guess. Mm. Because uh, I was thinking, well, we, ha we also have expectations. We want our patients to be uh, fully clean, uh, engaging in, in uh, valuable relationships, doing uh, uh, <laughs> some work, uh, hobbies. Um, so I see that when we work with patients, we, we uh, keep them in treatment for a very long time, uh, sometimes two years or so. And we oh, there's always something that's not really ticking. And <laughs> we want to... Uh, more and more and, and we ask that from ourselves we can't really accept that we're just going to be here so we have to do some work I guess with ourselves as clinicians as well so maybe yeah that's that's something we could um, uh, look into that because our patients come to us with with the high standards yeah? and they and we we take it and we uh, well, we, we will work with that, but is that the right thing to do? Yes. You need to have a discussion with, our, with the patient, I guess, on um, yeah, what, what does that high standard do to you and yeah. how, how can you manage it? Can I just say, I really want to, th I think this is where the work on the rich landscape of affordances comes in really nicely here by... Um, Eric Reitfeld and Julian Kiverstein in their group in Amsterdam, who you wrote the paper with originally, because what they're saying, they, they have this model that um, affordances can be also socio-cultural experiences. So um, relationships can build up these, this kind of uh, narrative 
that we sort of slip into and then there are these expectations and sometimes I think that's what's showing up in our clinical environment is that patients arrive and it's not necessarily that they expect to have these great outcomes but they the the idea is that you are the healer and within the health community we've got these expectations that they're going to all of a sudden reach this socio socially acceptable and functional level and so they're just using our language to create um successful communication within the assessment process sometimes because once you actually dig a bit deeper none of that stuff is important to half of them they're like actually i i don't really care about um having a shower every day well fair enough as long as you're healthy you know that's up to you i mean i it's the way i live but that's my bias and my cultural um norms and you know it might not be yours fair enough you know maybe we have to be a little bit more aware of our privilege and our bias and our culture and what that might do and what affordance that might bring up in the other person. So I think you're right. Yes. You've done it again. I mean, that's another meta point. I love these, I love these meta points, these points about the points of the system, right? So when you see somebody certain affordances, I mean, as a clinician, I imagine when you see somebody, certain things are going to afford as the things to manage and to work with. And those have to be tuned. You have to be really knowledgeable about how you're assuming what expectations you're bringing to the table because they're tuning how you see the patient, which is driving how you behave with the patient. And uh, for instance, if you think, well, look, you should live like this and then they don't, then you're breaching your own expectations. And that can be a very frustrating experience rather than knowing I'm actually seeing you based on my own cultural expectations. And I'm now that I'm aware of those cultural expectations, maybe I can um, act more skillfully or more reasonably with those in tow. Um, okay, so it's time to take a small break now. And for me to tell you how you can support the podcast and help to keep us going um, by signing up to become a patron through Patreon. Uh, search for Philosophers Chatting with Clinicians and you can find that there are two ways for you to support the podcast. Um, for two euros fifty you'll get early access and a shout out from me and you will get um, just a great feeling for keeping the podcast going um, and for a little bit extra for five euros a month you get not only we get all of those awesome benefits um, but you also get a little bit of extra content yeah so make sure you head over to patreon and check out all those things and um, so all that's left for me to do really is to dedicate this this next terrible joke to our current patreons so Michael R, Michael A, Thomas H, Bart BB, Mary G, and of course, everyone's favourite Dutchie, Thais RVM, who had to support the podcast because he's my husband. So, <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. Are you ready to laugh? Get your giggle hats on. What does a nosy pepper do? Get yalloping your bitness. <laughs> yeah, I know that. That was really bad. Okay, well, anyway, back to the podcast. I wanted to say one other thing, too. Um, I think there's quite a lot of uh, interesting research coming out about uh, compassion burnout, empathy burnout in, in hospitals. So where um, 
uh, different people in, in the support community have, and they may not even know they have it, but have these expectations that health will happen over a certain period of time. And when the person, and that's compassion, right? You want them to be better and you expect, so that you're really expecting them to get better. And now you're, you're being driven by that expectation to help them get better. Um, but they keep getting worse because, uh, well, because maybe their condition is just one that doesn't get better. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then you're breaching your own expectation again and again and again. And eventually what happens is the person, as I understand it, they just turn the volume down on those. The only way you can sort of get away from it is you turn the volume down on your empathy and you sort of, you sort of go a little bit the other direction. So we have these very weird behaviors are emerging out of people who are too compassionate. So you're too compassionate without this sort of meta, this uh, uh, meta understanding about uh, your own expectations can lead to, you know, very funny behaviors, sort of anti-empathy, anti-empathy behaviors. Um, I, I recognize that's also from uh, um, our uh, work as, yeah, settings. Uh, in addiction care, you have patients that come uh, in the clinic or uh, in treatment and they yeah, they seem improved and they come back again and again and again. And that's for the workers who work for a long time with, with these patients, there are all kinds of feelings like um, yeah, uh, disappointment, but also anger. And, and you see them acting angry because they don't want to be confronted with our own disappointment. So it, it's very right. recognizable. Right. Yeah. It's right. Right. Difficult wow. to see uh, you don't succeed because that's, I said, maybe it says something about the patient. Maybe it says something about you as a worker. It's for, very frustrating uh, or the world uh, patients are living in. You, it does a lot with your vision of the world when you see, uh, and your own expectations of that world when you see uh, where patients have to deal with and have to cope with. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's great, that, that kind of research on the, on the subject. Because, uh, yeah, we try to break that with in supervision and, and in, uh, uh, talking to colleagues about it, but it stays, uh, it's difficult, I guess, to uh, see yeah, what, how it affects you. What does that look like? What... Um what is the appropriate update, do you think, there? I mean, what, what sort of belief system or predictions do we install to, to uh, not necessarily protect, but I mean, uh, what do you think are the, what, what could we change about how we see the patient or see the world that would maybe alleviate some, alleviate some of that? Is there anything? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about it because um, maybe it, we should make it realistically, but I don't know if you can prevent getting disappointed, but maybe it's more in the acceptance then that, that you get those feelings and you can still be uh, uh, um, do things that you think are valuable in the work. So we have to focus maybe more on what is valuable why are you doing this work why are you uh, working what do you want to achieve and then still move toward that goal um, and and be aware of your feelings and negative feelings uh, and, and uh, disappointments in in 
in that area, but still um, setting the goal and, and, and going towards it or trying to achieve it and be yeah. proud of that you're trying to achieve it instead yeah. of uh, only being proud at the big successes and the, um, yeah, yeah, that I, maybe it's in, yeah, bit like, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. No, yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, um, on, uh, one thing that I love about this framework that I'm working on, uh, whether it turns out to be right or not, I mean, that's still yet to be determined. And of course we're not at the end of our science by, by any means. So it will keep changing and refining. But one thing I really like about it is I find quite often that, this framework gives me the right sort of metaphor or belief system to also just help me live better. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, for instance, if we really deeply, if we really deeply believed that we are these very dynamical systems that are integrated so that the, the issues that are arising in our lives are not your fault or my fault or their fault, but rather part of a much wider dynamical mm -hmm. array, then I imagine that that belief, so doing this philosophy, this is what I'm trying to say, doing this philosophy uh, often in my own experience lends to the kinds of beliefs that are helping me flourish as a human. And I really like that bit. So it's not just a sort of academic thing. I also feel like the more I look like this, the better I get at, the better I get at being a human also. And part of that is I am seeing humans as part of a much wider dynamical system more and more because I think like this a lot. So if somebody has a, what looks like a singular failure or even a singular success, I'm, it's, I, I think I'm starting to not just see that as their failure or their success, but rather it is a success or a failure which is arising in a much wider, extremely complex dynamical system. So then what is my job to help or to help anybody? Um, I just could imagine that if somebody was to come in and you had that really, if we really had that deep understanding, maybe it would be less disappointing because it wouldn't be like, well, they have failed or I have failed. Rather, it is, this is a really complex system. Yes. And change a whole complex system takes time and pressure and repetition. And that's just the nature of a dynamical system. I just have to keep pushing. That's my job. Every time you fall into this attractor state, I bump you back out again. And you yeah. fall into the attractor state, and I bump you back out again. And together, as part of one dynamical system, we are slowly, you know, we are slowly getting, <laughs> getting, it's, it's getting somewhere better, maybe. It's great that you're saying this, but uh, uh, because I'm wondering, should we gain something from explaining this to our patients? Right. Could it be that educating pa patients or think of, or doing this kind of a discussion with patients could help them uh, to right. to look right. at it from a different perspective and maybe um, yeah, I don't know yeah yeah we could do I, this session with a patient <laughs> also right in the in the yeah I I love this I find myself at every bit, so I just gave a talk at the University of Toronto just a sort of introductory talk to their artificial intelligence society on predictive processing. And I find every time I talk about predictive processing, more and more, I start talking sort of positive psychology things, like I'm giving sort of life advice in the middle of my talk, because I think it's really pertinent. At some point in time, you say, look, if this is right, then one of the take-home messages is that you are creating 
your experience of reality. So that of course there is a reality out there. That's of course for sure the case, but your system is creating from the top down your exact experience of that reality. Um, and so if the world isn't the way, if the world isn't the way you want it to be, or you think the world is not such a nice place, it may have less to do with the world and much more to do with your own beliefs and predictions and expectations. And that has to do with who you spend time with and the sort of things you do and the sort of things you're interested in. That's a really, I think that's a real message of hope. Mm-hmm. And if you know that, and I'd like to think that when people come to a lecture and somebody points that out, maybe they go home and think, oh man, maybe the life that I'm not satisfied with isn't only because the world is out there being unsatisfying, which, is, which would be really hard because the world's a very complex place. Maybe you can't change the world. Mm-hmm. You can change some things about yourself and that might change that might really change your experience of what this world is about. And I find it very empowering to know the cognitive system is doing that because I really do have a sense that in learning that, I, I was, uh, I'm better able to manage when things don't look like they're going my way. I think, okay. yeah, but how much of this is my own expectation and how can I change my own expectation? Expectations can change. So, so you're what- a great model for our patients. <laughs> <laughs> so I think well that's very interesting that you say model because maybe that's what we're doing just as humans together aren't we 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 mm-hmm. uh when we spend time with each other we can we can maybe model each other a little yeah yeah I think there's um I think we it's very easy to get caught up in that that thought viral but there's there is a little there's a little like negative ninny in the back here on my in the back of my head saying ooh we have to be really careful about how we how we bring this up um, because I, I think that that idea can sound to a person who is going through tremendous suffering and pain and addiction and, and struggle like they they are somehow at fault and that they are somehow wrong and that there is something wrong with them and then that seems to go against everything we talked about in the first part of this conversation you know where we're saying well actually this is just this is the way it is and I don't know, I think, we, I think this, this is a really difficult discussion and a hot debate at the moment, this idea of perception and, you know, how, how uh, you know, the, the sort of the grand illusion and how, how much in control of that are we and, and what role does that play within suffering? Because within health and within happiness, this model fits, flows very nicely. But once you start looking at someone who isn't functioning within society at the socially acceptable level, um, then, and, and that in itself is a really difficult statement, isn't it? Because who knows what is so, like socially acceptable and personally acceptable are two very different things, aren't they? And so we, we, get, we put a social judgment on that, but actually it might be that for that person, they're functioning within an, a perfectly reasonable level but then that wouldn't be ill health would it i suppose that's the problem but i think we have to be really there's just something in the background that's making me think oh we have to be careful because we're starting to introduce a kind of hysterical model and then we start and and that's almost like full circle so (laughs) i almost almost would think uh maybe and see if this hits but maybe the maybe the ideal position to be in is one to accept that it's a wider dynamical system and that what's occurring in your own experience isn't just your fault. It's the, it's just a, it's a wider dynamic. 
And then on the other half, so one half is the acceptance. Maybe this is the accept and commit model coming full power, except that it's a wider dynamical system and that you don't, you don't own all of the little perceptual adjustments that are, make up your reality. But the other side of it is, is that in that dynamical systems, there's lots of ways to toggle and to move that system. Changing your world uh, medication certainly does help, you know, like just changing brain chemistry does help. Changing the sort of behaviors you have and the people you spend time with. Those are all ways to toggle that dynamical system. And that if you take small steps, small reasonable steps, um, then uh, a massive experiential change can take place just by small steps. You don't have to manage the entire system. You can just do what you can at a small degree and it really will have uh, long lasting effects or could have long lasting effects. And of course, that is a very complex system that's doing that. So you're always working with the complexity of human experience and human right. nature. It's just that you're, you're reducing the variables and the potential for like, I don't know, risk. And, and you're exploring it within, within a sort of more controlled experiment. It's like behavior experiments, aren't they? It's like, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that that way of integrating the model is, is, a, is a much more sort of like, well, it fits my bias much more. I, I feel less of course. This idea that we're, we're dealing with a reality that is, 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 you know, dynamically coupled with our environment. We're living within our environment in the present moment and that our beliefs, memories, perceptions, all these things are part of how we um, attend to different aspects of our environment and how we create relationships with different aspects of our environment but you know the the world the real physical world is out there for us to manipulate and by doing so we have a profound um, and wide-ranging complex um, uh, change or shift or reaction within our complex physiology our complex human state and um, you know we all the time so, so changing small simple things are never simple because it's a complex um right. agent environment right. system that is is engaging within that simple thing and that's not about changing your reality that is about shifting your entire being but using simple um interactions to do that or achievable interactions to do that challenging but achievable I think you're right, Lauren, because uh, thinking about it, if you only get to change the perspective of the patient or the expectations, some of our patients do that already. They, uh, but there's a risk at that because they think, oh, the, we, we can't meet up with the reality or we can't uh, attain our goals. So we just move away from it and don't have any expectations at all. And they go blank and they, they uh, um, just don't move towards anything anymore. So there's, there's also that kind of a risk, I guess. And uh, that's also, uh, yeah, um, also affecting the whole system and, and keeping it like it is or worsening it, I, I, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I can... Yeah, because this 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 is the downfall. Of, uh, yeah, this is the downfall of the of some of the earlier cognitive and behavioral therapies, isn't it? That actually, what we found is changing thoughts we can do quite 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 successfully within a short space of time. Like one clinical session, one clinical encounter can you, you know you can take somebody's thoughts from one place to another, 
but it, they don't necessarily hold over time because we're not changing identities. Mm. Right. Um, and that's the problem. So when we think about these really, these really tricky treatment resistant, not uh, treatment resistant, I hate that terminology, um, <laughs> difficult to treat or difficult to, to fix or cure or change. I'm not really sure what the right word is, but um, these things like addiction and pain and um, you know, anxiety, clinical depression, these kind of things that are very difficult to treat. If we, we don't want to fall into the other side of the sort of dualistic coin, do we? We don't want people to say, well, this is, this is just perception, therefore we just need to work with the mind. Um, we we yeah. really want to make sure that we're working with a fully integrated and dynamical system. Um, and I think this is the hard bit as we start shifting across to predictive processing and embodied cognition models is that there isn't really one way of interpreting how what embodied cognition means, right? That cognition can be, it can be one philosopher or one cognitive scientist might say, this is embodied cognition and this is where cognition is happening and that might be in the brain. And then you might have another one that's saying it's in the body and another one that's like more radically extended. And we don't really have a, a kind of strong definition around what this is. And so there's mm -hmm. lots, of, lots of area for misinterpretation. I think we have to be really careful that what we're not saying is this is about changing um, like the kind of, um, illusion of reality. This is about working. This is my bias, and I'm sorry if I've misinterpreted. Like we are about working with reality, not and, and that has many forms. Part of it is perceptual and illusionary because we become very skilled at using those self-fulfilling, non-reflective uh, loops. And then another part of it is about in actually engaging within our environment and the sort of affordances that build up and the error that builds up within our, our skilled intentionality and skills, the use of our environment. Yes. Just say, just one thing there. Um, we've talked a little bit today about the power of reframing. Um, and uh, I think, I think uh, one of the potentially, one of the potentially powerful outcomes of taking this sort of model seriously is I think to be empowered to reframe uh, more flexibly, because part of reframing is you have to know that the thing that you're looking at isn't isn't exactly the way it gives itself to be, that it could be seen in another way. But you can't do that unless you know somewhere that it's not the way that it pretends to be, that it's just showing itself, it's showing one face of itself, but there's going to be other faces, there's going to be other faces that can be seen. And um, when you know that, that's what really empowers reframing, isn't it? Reframing is is really starts to be a possibility when you know that it's not exactly the way it pretends to be. So uh, for somebody who hasn't yet self-reflected on their own sort of jealous capacities, they might see the world as, uh, you know, my partner is unfaithful and these other people are acting in these ways and uh, that's the world, you know? So then they tell all their friends, well, that's the real world. You know, these people are not very nice and my partner is untrustworthy. Um, and then if, they get an opportunity to really reflect and look at their own jealousy models. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that would happen in therapy or, or just with a good friend. They might see, well, hold on a second. My feelings of jealousy are just, they're just feelings and they could be accurate or not. They're, they don't necessarily truly depict what the world is all about. Um, and knowing that's a huge thing, isn't it? That's real wisdom. Because then you can say, well, what about all the other things I feel? 
uh, where I'm thinking, well, this person is bad, this person is good, I know that. Uh, well, actually, maybe that's worth a double check. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to add something else to the, to the, to the chat also. Uh, yeah. the, diff the, the most difficult thing with our patients, and maybe we could also see that from that perspective and with the, the frame and the acceptance and um is that to how do we get to keep the patients coming to us because a dropout is the most difficult thing to encounter in addiction care uh, mm -hmm. maybe it's difficult different i don't know really for uh, depression or excited but that's really specific for our patients that they that they drop out if they even show up yeah so so they um um that's a difficult thing and that's our patients never come because they don't like the drugs anymore they they don't like what the alcohol or the the, the cocaine does for them but they also sh they always show up because somewhere in the system uh, the the people around them or the, 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 the their health or their partner or their em uh, employer says you have to do something about it so uh, and then they come but that's that's really thin it's really thin eyes which we walk on because um just in a split second they can change their mind and be out of the door so how do we also integrate it in the in in our frame of what's going on and um yeah, yeah how how do we get them to commit and uh, yeah in, in what way do we commit to them if they're they're not showing <laughs> so uh, that's something maybe something different but that's was also yeah. going through my mind so yeah. do you have something from your uh more from your perspective mark or laura uh, how could we tackle this or how could we i'm not sure if this is going to be a bullseye but the the thing that comes up for me is uh i suspect people would stay would want to stay in a sort of developmental movement if they thought there was going to be substantial change, maybe not just addressing the, the sort of uh, one part of their life, but if they thought their life would actually get much better. Um, and to, to convey that to people, I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking like in terms that, uh, one of the things that I always come back to in my own thinking about this model is that, like we've already said so many times, small changes can make significant, can make significant reality adjustments. So um, that really the world, the world that I live in, the world that I experience and interpret, um, it will, it can change. It can really change. Um, and it can change by not, by, by just changing some, sometimes some very simple things like changing a little bit my belief structures and, and seeing, you know, learning how to reframe. And the that's what I'm trying to say. The power of really having somebody help you reframe a little in your life is, is a, it's a major thing. It can be, it can be the whole thing. Um, of course, I don't work in a clinic, so I have no idea what it would be like to talk with people. But I just, I just think that, well, I don't know if that's useful or not. Yeah. I think it's a really good question. It's something that we see in the pain clinics as well. There's a huge overlap between these yeah. um, presenting conditions. Um, it's something that we see in the pain clinics a lot as well. And it, it's almost as if the, 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 
the physiological need to fulfill the prediction of of using a drug or of having pain maybe dare I say it although I'm I'm not I might get nailed for that later yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's so strong and, and you said in your paper that it's like hunger the, the, the people who are experiencing these um, physiological behavior states like addiction um, they're fulfilling their physiology and their way of working within the within the the need state that that is driven up with the prediction is totally normal and rational and successful so we need to make that less successful yeah so maybe it's within the use maybe it's within the drug use that we need to start exploring and opening out that experience so what about if we brought the drug use into the clinic and they were able to use it exactly the way that they would use it on the street but we brought it into the clinic and we were maybe able to start working with their experience of having that drug in exactly the same form and maybe they even buy it i don't know whether we're ethically allowed to do this but you know there's obviously issues here but you know maybe we are (laughs) maybe we're maybe we're medicalizing it so much that it's non-realistic anymore for the person it's so far outside of their precision that it that what we're doing just makes no sense to their system because essentially we're telling them you know when you're really hungry just don't eat and then keep not eating and keep not eating and keep not eating and keep not eating and it just doesn't make any sense to them and that that makes perfect sense to me why would it why would it make sense to them so what we have to do is work with the within their precise framework of of existence and we have to start fiddling right I, I don't know if that makes sense. That makes sense because we already, we, we try to do that in some perspective with the patients who are uh, really uh, have, a, have had a lot of treatment and not responded well. So that we, we give them heroin. Yeah? So uh, me- medically uh, uh, mm-hmm. made uh, heroin. Uh, or um, we let them take the alcohol in a more controlled area where they have medical support also, but not with that goal. You're, uh, so it's it's in- interesting because we do that to for harm reduction reasons, but not to in order to um, fiddle on it and, and change it a bit. Or um, okay, yeah, maybe we could uh, explore that some more because. Uh, so- so maybe maybe a leg of this conversation is uh, Mark Lewis highlights this in a number of talks. I'm not sure where he took it from, but that uh, so you know he's a big proponent of addiction not being a disease, but rather being a sort of learning malfunction. So the learning system has just sort of tracked and grabbed hold of the wrong sorts of things, or or, or maybe not even the wrong sorts of things, but just things that lead lead to harm over time can lead to harm over time, um, and. Uh, Mark highlights that uh, some research that shows that addictions bring a, they come to their own natural conclusion for most people. Unlike a disease, there's a certain there's like a there's a um, a shelf life for addictions. So you know, alcohol has a certain shelf life, you know, twenty years or something. Cocaine has a shelf life of five years. Heroin has a shelf life of ten years. And that most people who get addicted end up sometime over that period bumping back out again, and not necessarily because they sought help or anything else, but rather it, it just seems to, it seems to resolve itself over a certain amount of time. Um, our learning model, I mean, 
I don't know how this will work in the real world, but one of the hypotheses we have is that, uh, like Mark, that uh, addiction is a sort of, the system is learning in a new way. And in it, like Laura just shared, the system, and the predictive system is an optimizing system. And this is still one way for it to optimize. And so the brain is doing what it was built to do. It's built to reduce error over time. And that's just one way that the brain has learned, well, look, I can reduce error over time. This is exactly what the brain is meant to do. So it's just leveraging the world to do the thing it was evolved to do. But of course, it's a little bit fictitious because although it feels like you're reducing error, in fact, error is going up. You're losing your health and you're potentially losing your relationships and you have other uh, difficulties that arise because of drug use as it gets very bad. Um, but you might imagine that over enough time, the system would eventually start figuring out that even though it feels like error is going down, error keeps going up. And that I was thinking just sort of hypothetically that that might be one of the reasons why there's a shelf life because it takes about that much time for the system to figure out, wait, hold on a second. It felt like it was getting better, but it's not, it's getting much worse. In uh, the 12-step program, I think we already see that coming out when people say you have to hit rock bottom. You have to hit rock bottom before you can, before you can sort of turn around. And you can imagine that might be the system learning, well, this didn't work at all. Um, I thought that this was going to be a good way to manage error, and it turned out not to be a good way at all. So I wonder if we could facilitate, Laura, that would be my only addition here. I wonder if we could facilitate that learning so it happened faster. Uh, yeah. So rock bottom is when the error builds up so much in the other spectrums of your life that, that we start to attend right. to that as opposed to attending right. to the error that is within this particular direction, like this towards, exactly. towards the drug use or towards something else. That was interesting. Exactly right. The difficulty with, with the rock bottom uh, theory is, I guess, that when you mm -hmm. read rock, rock bottom for real, uh, most of the addicts, they don't have, uh, they, they can, the brain can, or you can, uh, the system can conclude that there's, that something else is needed, but then the, the, uh, facilities or the yeah the, everything you need to recover is is lacking so uh, support uh, right. job so so that's that's yeah. difficult I guess but maybe we could what we're trying to do in clinical practice is creating the feeling of uh, rock bottom by introducing things that can be lost and putting the spotlight to that so uh, uh, putting the emphasis on the partner who says, uh, I, I, if you uh, keep continuing, then I will leave, or I will leave and I will only come back if you really have stopped for two months or so we, yeah, that's, that's, uh, because if they really hit rock bottom, then it's very mm -hmm. difficult for a lot of our patients to yeah. get back up because that's, yeah, that's then getting too complex for them. So. Yeah, I would say that's our privilege at work there, isn't it? We, we have no idea what rock bottom is like. And for a lot of the people we work with, rock bottom is a very high risk um, place to be. Um, mm. That and, and if there is no security net at that point, because you are so far out of the social system, um, yeah, rock bottom, the, the, the solution could be the final solution. And that's what we really need to be careful of when we, we don't want to create suffering or to facilitate suffering, our role is always to reduce suffering. And, and that's, that's the point of the healthcare system. And uh, so I think that's a very good point. I think that's maybe some of our biases coming in that we just don't 
really understand what rock bottom is like for, an, for a, a, someone who has addiction. And I don't mean to make assumptions on your life, Mark, or, or your no, clothes, no, but no, no. certainly I don't, don't fully understand it. And, uh, I completely hear that. I wonder, um, so this, the, spirit of, the spirit of that comment about rock bottom would be uh, when the system learns that what seems like a good way to go is actually going to be a, a really bad way to go yep. over a long enough period of time. Yeah. So then the game would be, how do, you, how do you teach the system that that's the case? You're right, well before they've exhausted, somebody has exhausted all of their possible resources, right? Mm -hmm. um, have either of you seen benefit in using sort of mindfulness, uh, which is just an attentional training system to attend to certain things rather than to other things? I wonder if that has any benefit for these sorts of, um, these sorts of resolutions. Yeah, the, we in, in the addiction care we we uh, use it, I guess. But the the evidence is, yeah, some evidence says it, it's working. Some evidence is not. So, um, but I maybe because in in acceptance and commitment therapy, there's also some uh, mindfulness, but with, in a different perspective, I guess. But I looking at Laura because you're <laughs> much more into that. But uh, um, being yeah, being mindful with a, with a much more purpose than only being mindful, I guess, okay. and think right. that's the solution. Right. So, yeah. Um, but in that perspective, I, I think it can, can work um, uh, in order to be more in contact with what you, what you feel, what you need, what, what you're uh, lacking uh, in order to uh, go to what 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 is valuable for me and how do I get there and how can I uh, stick with it and um, just uh, accept that that there that all these feelings are coming and and going again <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah instead of uh, approaching them therapeutically and trying to get rid of it rid of the the anxiety rid of the depression rid of rid of the addiction even i think you can with an addiction you can also keep moving uh i think maybe that's an approach we don't try enough with our patients to say okay you're using drugs but can you still go to what what's valuable for you mm -hmm. so uh, maybe you could could do that more and just be mindful about the fact that they're using drugs <laughs> so uh, also as a clinician maybe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't really have a lot to add. I think mindfulness is something that has become, so mindfulness is something that, as Katinka knows, it's something that I use and talk about, but it's also something that I approach with real caution. Um, I think that there's been a lot of misuse and it's turned into a kind of healthcare panacea. Everybody just needs mindfulness. And what I is actually happening is we're teaching people relaxation meditation, which is a, a version of like emptying or creating space, which can be useful. But there's no real goal at the end of that, and and that maybe that's my own problem, and maybe that's maybe that's me not being very acceptance and commitment therapy or very mindful. It's just that I, the way I interpret it is that it is a it is a life skill that is in service of reaching a particular goal, and that it can sometimes give us space or sometimes allow us to stay still in the chaos so that we can see it and, and observe it 
in a helpful way that and then be able to commit to a particular action knowing that all of that is that exactly what you've said Katinka so that's 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 I think that there is an emerging evidence for it but um and I know that there are some great mindfulness based practitioners out there who integrate it within their clinical practice um beautifully but I do think we have to be a, a little bit careful that we aren't just um, teaching people that in order to get better, they have to take one hour out of their day to be mindful. And that mindfulness then becomes the, the, the sort of the process of change as opposed to being part of a wider model and framework to move towards in service of goals and values and a, and a life that somebody chooses as opposed to... Um, feeling like you're being pulled around by the world and the environment in a, in a way that you're sort of not having so much ownership or, or autonomy over. One thing to say about mindfulness though, is that it's um, um, to think that mindfulness is only relaxation is to miss mostly what mindfulness is for. So mindfulness traditionally is, uh, is about remembering and about wise application of attention on particular features rather than others. So it really is a, a, a wisdom process where you're learning to attend in certain ways that lead to benefit. Um, and, you know, uh, just, just as a forecast for the next time we get the talk, maybe um, mm -hmm. with predictive processing, precision is a big hero of the story that's driving the system. And it's really closely related to attention. So these systems where you're learning how to set precision in more beneficial ways, I think, I think at least there's a, there's a big open question there about, about its value. And I would agree. I, if we're using mindfulness in that, that way, I can see the therapeutic benefits for that. Um, and of course, there's always variation within the people we see as to, to how much and to the extent that we expose people to these techniques. That's our job, isn't it? It's the dose titration to these, these skills and introducing new stuff into people's lives. Um, but yeah, I think if we're using it in service of that, then we're all on the same page. This was great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. And Laura, thank you so much. It was great. Oh, did you enjoy it? I, I loved, loved it. it. Thank you very much because I, I have a lot of ideas to, to think about for, for the really clinical work with our patients and how to translate it. And uh, or it re reading your article, uh, uh, Mark, uh, was really um, challenging me to think about it in a different uh, way. So also thank I you for I wasn't expecting anybody to have read the article. So it was such a surprise when you're like, oh, oh yeah, your article. I was like, oh. And then I did. So <laughs> <laughs> I was struggling with it uh, very much, but uh, I, I'm glad I did. So. Okay, great. Excellent. Lovely. 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 And up, up to talk anytime. So let me know, either of you, if you want to chat yeah. about anything like this, because this is, this is what I'm really interested in. Okay. Well, you've got each other's emails, haven't you, now? Because exactly. we've connected yeah. through it. So, yeah. So, uh, see you next time then. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. See you all later.